every time I encourage um, a believer to go uh, to be bold in the face of persecution, I can't sleep for days. I lose a lot of sleep, um, and I I cry tears. You know, we're it's it's not an easy calling to ask people to do that, but it's what Jesus would do. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help. Right now on The Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome again to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton. We are in the studio today in Bartlesville, Oklahoma with David Paul. David has been working among Urdu-speaking Muslims in South Asia, and we will talk a little bit about it. I think instantly we think of Pakistan, but there are Urdu-speaking Muslims in other countries around there as well. David, welcome to The Voice of the Martyrs Radio. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Todd. As we start out, I'd, let's go back to the very beginning. How did God call you? I, people will know now from your accent that you're not uh, an Urdu-speaking Muslim background believer. That's right. How did God call you out of the U.S. to go into international cross-cultural ministry? Well, as a new believer, about a year and a half into my faith, I had the chance to go to central Turkey, sharing the gospel for about two months, and just fell in love with Muslim peoples. And I, I thought, man, this is where I want to invest my life. And coming back from that, I did everything that I could to spend time with Muslims. I would go to mosques and Muslim student groups and Muslim grocery stores and built friends with Muslims wherever I could and just really felt a calling in my heart that God wanted me to bring, go to Muslim people. So when my wife and I got married, we thought that was the trajectory we were going on and we thought we'd go to the Middle East because that's where Muslims are, right? <laughs> and during that time, God just kept bringing things onto our path about the Muslims of South Asia and just how many Muslims there are in South Asia, places like Bangladesh and Pakistan, as you mentioned, India, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Maldives, these places um, that have such large Muslim populations. And I was just hearing that very few people were going to those places. And so my wife and I were just praying and we were honestly on a vision trip in the Middle East. And we, we joked that we were called to the Muslims of South Asia during that vision trip to the Middle East. Then we, we moved to South Asia without ever having visited South Asia. Wow. So that was a great joy for us, and um, it's worked out for us. People thought we were crazy, but it's been fun. <laughs> if you look back on those first two or three years, what were some of the hard times or what were some of the challenges? Because obviously you're moving to a completely different culture. As you mentioned, you'd never even been there before. It's not like you had visited and kind of knew the lay of the land. What were some of the challenges, and how did God minister to you or help you to, to work through those sort of walls? We honestly joined a team that was facing challenges as a team. And so our, our team fell apart our first year on the field. Oh, wow. And so we, uh, we were left not quite without any supervision, but pretty close to new supervision as new field workers. And we had to work through just being self-starters. And we were self-starters. We were, we were ready to do that. But then also language learning. Language learning is hard. And trying to press forward to get to the point that we could communicate the gospel and and begin to disciple new believers. And I think it took me 18 months or something before I could really share the gospel well and lead, like teach the Bible decently in the language. It, just a lot of diligence, a lot of work. Um, 
And even now when we, we have new people join our work, I tell them they get to a certain language proficiency and I say, well, it's not really enough. We want to get people to the point that they can teach the book of Hebrews and Urdu over the phone with a new Muslim background believer. That's what I tell them. That's the level we want <laughs> you to get the to. Test. <laughs> but getting to that point in the language is hard and we're always still pushing forward. In fact, I still am today. Thinking of our listeners now who, you know, they maybe they support missionaries, maybe they have friends who are missionaries that are in that stage. Yeah. How do we how do we pray for them and how do we even from this side of the ocean encourage them and and help keep them motivated to go forward? So I think one important thing that supporters need to remember is that it usually takes a period of time on the field before people hit their highest level of fruitfulness. Um, I've, I think the same thing happens in local churches. Once a pastor's been in a local church for about seven or eight years, it's like they begin to jive with that church and begin moving it forward. It's the same thing with missionaries. If they can press forward in a language and a culture and a place for seven, eight years, if they can get to that point, they usually see they get into a, the best groove that they've ever gotten into. The reality is that most missionaries don't make it that long. And so we need to continue to help encourage missionaries from afar. There, there's a place that we're trying to get you to. And helping them, um, I, I heard a, a, a statement, I think it was from a football coach, who said something like um, that his job was to get people to do the things that they hated to accomplish the things that they've always wanted to do. And um, I think that that's what churches need to encourage missionaries to do. You have to press forward in language. You have mm -hmm. to just push into the Lord. You have to push forward. And helping people realize that there's a fog that they need to get through, and they will get through to the other side if they push forward. But it's not easy. Wow. So I hope that encourages you as you're listening, as you think about, and man, maybe you have missionary friends, you want to send them a text message, just right even at this moment and say, hey, we're praying for you. We're praying for you to press forward. We're praying for you in language acquisition. We're talking this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with David Paul. He is working among Urdu-speaking Muslims in South Asia. David, I want to talk a little bit about Urdu speakers. You, you mentioned India. Mm -hmm. And what is it like for an Urdu speaker in India? Because obviously it's a majority Hindu country, hmm. and yet they are Muslim. It's a majority Hindi-speaking country, and yet they speak Urdu. Do they have like a recognized place in society, or are they kind of picked on even whether they're a believer or not? So Urdu is one of the national languages of India. So okay. it, it is a well-known language in different places in India. It's, it's actually a well-known language in Nepal as well. If you go to the southern part of Nepal in an area that they call the Terai, that's right along the Indian border, you can get by in either Nepali or Urdu in many of those villages of that place. Wow. And honestly, if you go to a place like the United Arab Emirates or even to Saudi Arabia or places like that and you begin passing through, you realize that most of the workers aren't speaking Arabic. They're speaking Urdu. So I've had, um, I've had a number of times that I've passed through a place like Dubai, for example, and I'll be in a taxi and the the – Two men will be speaking to each other in the language, and I'll just jump in, and they'll be they're surprised. They're, they're thinking, "What is this white guy doing speaking our language?" You also know if they're talking about you. Yeah, <laughs> I've surprised several people that way. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a fun trick to play. It is in an Urdu culture in an Urdu context, whether mm -hmm. it be India or Pakistan or some of these other countries. Yeah. What role does religion play and what happens to me as a Urdu speaking Muslim if I say, "Hey, I had a dream last night and I'm a follower of Jesus now." Hmm. What what is likely to happen to me? Man, there's a lot of different things that could happen. We think that there's always like a standard response that everyone's going to make. Sometimes um, I've, I've actually seen some Muslim families. I think of um, 
I'll, I'll just say this one, Muhammad S. Uh, everybody's Muhammad something. Muhammad S. was a young young man I got to lead to the Lord several years ago. And when his family heard that he was following Jesus, when he went and told them, they said, we don't care what you do with religion. Just wow. live your own life. And that's that's a strange response. We've had other people who've gone and told their families and the response has been stronger. Something like, you're no, like one of my closest friends, we'll call him Muhammad A., his father stood up and told him, you're no longer my son. You're no longer part of our family and cast him out of the family. And then we've had other people who've been beaten for making those sorts of statements. Is there a clue ahead of time of, of how their family's going to respond or is it kind of sort of random? So uh, when we talk about South Asian Islam, one of the rubrics that I like to use is what we call the Muslim triangle. And I think that I think of South Asian Islam as being formed around three types of Islam that are impacting the, the average Muslim. And one pole of that is the Orthodox Muslim who believes that the, the Quran is true and is just seeking to follow the Quran and the Hadith. Another side is a secular Muslim who's like, yeah, yeah, we're Muslim, but the most important thing is to get a good education so we can get a good job so we can have a nice life. And the third pole is uh, folk Islam that's more focused on esoteric rituals and how to go through saints to have our prayers heard and how to get blessings and kind of like a prosperity Islam, so to speak. So Orthodox Islam, secular Islam, folk Islam. So in my experience, if somebody's from an Orthodox Muslim family that's stronger in that poll, they're going to get the most persecution. Okay. If somebody's from a folk Muslim background, they're going to get some persecution, but not as much. And if they're from a secular background, they're going to be like, well, as long as you're happy. It's not quite that distinct, uh -huh. but th that helps us understand it a yeah. lot. And it's interesting to me because I think you could make a comparison to Christianity the same way. Exactly. <laughs> there, there yeah, I think different, so. Different points of the triangle as far as how self-professed Christians would believe or act in, in a given situation. How is the gospel spreading among Urdu-speaking Muslims in that part of the world? Is it they have a friend who comes to faith? Is it a dream or a vision? Is it uh, somebody like you, an outsider, talking to them? Is it all of the above? Is there one way that's producing more than others? Give us a look at, at kind of how the gospel's spreading there. Well, the, the places where the gospel is spreading most effectively among Muslims have been when places where Muslim background believers have become strong in the faith. These are people who've come to Christ in some other way in the past, and they're turning around and sharing the gospel with their own families and their own relationships. So like this brother Muhammad A that I mentioned earlier, he was kicked out of his family. And um, after that, he, he became strong in the faith, and he began reaching back out to his family. And now much of his family has come to Christ, even after they kicked him out, and he's being used to reach out to other Muslims around him. That's probably the most effective way. But the reality is that in most places, in a, in a place like South Asia, we don't have Muslim background believers who are ready to do that. So we often have to take a step back, and we end up training large numbers of local believers in how to reach out to their Muslim neighbors. And one of the things that we've seen a lot of fruitfulness within South Asia is going and training in local local fellowships or local, like usually people who've come from a Hindu background to Christ, and training them to go reach their out to their Muslim neighbors. But one of the blocks we hit with that is that they, the Muslims begin reading the Bible. They begin asking questions, but they're not ready to repent and believe because they say there's kind of a feeling that you don't understand our culture. You don't understand where we're coming from. And so they often just get to that place of being a seeker and stop. And they might have one foot in Islam and one foot in Christ and trying to decide where they fit. Um, is, is that a matter of counting the costs? Like, I don't want to make this commitment because of what it's going to cost me? Or is it a matter of, 
I, you know, I like to keep all my options open or, or some of all of that. So part of it is this, they don't know what they're jumping into. They, they, they know that to, to follow Jesus means to leave the Ummah of Islam, leave, leave the community of Islam. And they, often that means that they'll lose their job or their household. They might, they might lose their wife or their parents. They, they know there's going to be a great cost, but they're not sure if there's a community ready to receive them. I've had Muslim men who've told me this, for example, if you'll arrange a Christian wife, I'll take baptism. <laughs> and part of, the, part of what they're saying is, that, is this, if you're ready to make a place for me to come, I'll jump. So um, one, of the, one of the tricks that we've found for overcoming this has been bringing more mature Muslim background believers like guys like Muhammad A or Muhammad S along and introducing them to these Muslim seekers who've learned through Hindu background believers, having them share their testimony in that context because then the, the Muslim seekers say, oh, these people are from our community. Right. These people understand. These people will be family to me. And when they, when they hear those testimonies and they have those interactions, then they're ready to count the cost because they're not the first to do it. So they need to see an example of somebody who's, who's walked that path. It's kind of like you think about innovators. You have early innovators and late innovators. And there's only a handful that are ready to be that bleeding edge of innovation, who are ready to be the first of the first of the first. But as some move forward and are the ones to adapt and come to Christ, they've created an opportunity for more Muslims who want to make that decision to follow behind them. Amen. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with David Paul. He is working among Urdu-speaking Muslims in South Asia. How do you get people ready to make that public stance and face that point of no return or that point of persecution, knowing that I might lose my community, I might lose my family, knowing that I could face physical assault? How do, you, how do you get people ready for persecution? So we have a 14-step discipleship process that we use from sharing the gospel to um, all the way to making public decisions. And if it's okay, I'll, let me just really yeah. briefly run through it. So the first thing we do is we share the gospel. And just we have a gospel presentation we use. The next five steps are just what we call the five unique things about Jesus. And this is a tool we use to help Muslim seekers to realize that we're talking differently about Jesus than they've heard about in Islam. And we talk about the unique birth of Jesus and the unique miracles of Jesus as the first two. And those two really build a bridge because what we say about Jesus through these stories, um, it's somewhat similar to what they hear in the Quran and in Islam. But like the second one, we use Matthew 9, where Jesus heals a paralytic. And he doesn't just heal him, he forgives him. And we say, who can forgive sin? They always say, only Allah can forgive sins. That's right. And Jesus forgave sins. What does it say about Jesus? And we're starting to drive towards the deity of Christ early in that process. The third is the unique teachings of Jesus. And we talk about he's the way, the truth, and the life. The unique sacrifice of Jesus and his empty tomb. In South Asia, the, the reality of the empty tomb is stark. And we use the story from Matthew 28, 1 through 10, when we talk about that. And in verse 9, these people take hold of his feet and they worship him. And we always say, what does it mean that Jesus received worship? Who receives worship? And, and we're trying to drive them towards this idea that Jesus isn't just a good prophet. He's the creator of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a preparatory step because when a Muslim sees that Jesus isn't just a prophet, a lot of Islam starts to unravel. And they start seeing this comparison between Muhammad and Jesus. We don't usually draw that ourselves. 
We let their, them draw that in their hearts as we look at the text. If somebody's going to walk away in this process, is that the point where they're likely to walk away? It's like, wait a minute, I can't, I can't go that far. I can't say Jesus is God. Usually the point that they walk away is actually when we talk about the sacrifice. When we, go, we walk through Matthew 27, 32 to 54 about the sacrifice of Christ, we use that story. And they say, I just can't believe that he died on the cross. That's usually the, the breaking point. Sometimes it's the deity of Christ, but somewhere in there, some we like, lose a like chunk. Like how could God die? Yes. Yes. Okay. That, that sort of question. And that's taught against so strongly against, against an Islam mm-hmm. and that as we push that, we, we just put the text in front of them and see if the, the Holy Spirit works in their heart. And some people walk away and some people walk forward. Okay. So then the next series of eight steps are eight Bible studies just to help them to – we call them the eight commands of Christ. Some people use seven commands of Christ, but it's just teaching them about what it means to repent and believe, to take baptism, to pray, to study the Bible, to go and make disciples love, felt, join in a house church and taking the Lord's Supper and to give. And we just have a Bible study we do on each of those. And those steps, it really helps them to realize this is what we mean by a disciple, and from the process of hearing the gospel, understanding something of who Jesus is, what what it means to follow Jesus, they start to get an idea of, and, and we're asking them along the way, are you ready to make this decision or not? And then often people get stuck in between at that point where they're still like, well, maybe I can live in both worlds. Meaning I could believe in Jesus in my heart. But I'm not going to tell anyone about this. I'm, you know, I still go to the mosque on Friday because my whole family does, and I don't want to cause a scene. Yeah, that kind of having a foot in both worlds. Yeah, um, and and in a sense that the people who have a foot in both worlds often they they live a miserable life. Yeah, because they they're not sure where they fit. They're afraid to let their wife or their friends or their father see who they are, and they're thinking that if I show my cards, who knows what will happen to me. And so when people are in that status, we, we, do in, we do gently nudge them towards making a decision and saying, you know, come into this world, come, come into Jesus. And it's two of the stories that we often use as Matthew 10, 32 to 37 about in that passage where Jesus is telling his disciples, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. And the call that Jesus makes in our lives. And uh, saying, well, this is what Jesus is asking of you, is to confess him before men. And then Nicodemus and his story in the Gospel of John is a fascinating story that we often use, where in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus by night. But John 7, he shows back up, and he's meeting with the religious leaders, and he, he stands up and he tries to defend Jesus a little bit in verse 50. And we can see that God is doing something in his life. We don't really know what's happening at that point. And a lot of Muslim seekers are like that. And then it's no doubt Nicodemus was there as a ruler among the Jews when they were conspiring to kill him and they arrested him, bringing him to Pilate and all the all the trial scenes. But it's only after the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus that he goes with Joseph of Arimathea and they take his body and bury him. And that would have been a very public act. And something happened in Nicodemus during that time where he chose to go public. And just like Jesus had grace in giving Nicodemus the time he needed to to go public, we need to have grace with Muslim seekers to say, if you're not ready today, we're going to bear with you. We're going to love you. But mm-hmm. eventually, like Nicodemus went public, you're going to need to go public as well. And is that another point where some walk away? Like, like no, I'm not – I can't do that. Yeah, some do walk away at that point. Okay. Or some just – they usually don't walk away. It's more like it just fizzles out. 
most churches of Muslim background believers, if somebody wants to have a foot in both worlds, the rest of the church won't trust that person. And they can't be accept, really accepted into fellowship with others. Mm-hmm. So they end up on their own and their faith can't sustain yeah. in the middle of that. We're not meant to just be alone That's right. in our faith. We're talking this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with David Paul. He is working among Urdu-speaking Muslims in South Asia. David, many of our listeners have a Muslim friend, a hmm. fellow student, a coworker, a neighbor. They would love to have a spiritual conversation with that person, but they're intimidated. You know, I don't, I don't know enough about Islam. I don't know all the answers to the questions they might possibly ask. Give us some advice as yeah. we interact with Muslims right, right here in the U.S., in Australia, in wherever we're listening, as we want to have those spiritual conversations. Just kind of coach us a little bit. So uh, to begin, let's talk about a resource that somebody could read to learn more. I think that the best resource, and I love it because it's an Urdu-speaking Muslim who came to Christ, is Nabil <laughs> Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Just a great story that weaves the story of a, a Muslim coming to Christ, along with a lot of apologetics material and understanding Islam. It's also a great book that you could give to a Muslim friend who showed some interest. That book will, will help inform you, but it probably won't tell you how to talk to a Muslim about Christ. The, the advice that I would usually give to somebody in the West is this, is two things. One is take advantage of holidays, Christmas, Easter, those sorts of things. And for a lot of Muslims, it's not unusual for them to think, oh, the, a Christian's going to be really happy about their religion around Christmas. I have often given Bibles away or given copies of the Jesus film away as Christmas gifts along with some a treat or something like that, or even said, hey, I just want to celebrate my holiday by gifting this to you. And it opens a door, and that might open a door of conversation. A second way, and this is even simpler than that, is to ask a lot of questions, is to, be, is to say, hey, I understand you're a Muslim. Could I buy you lunch sometime, or could we have coffee? And I'd just like to hear more about you and your background, and spend a bunch of time just asking questions and being a genuine learner about what their experience is religiously and what they believe. And then it's pretty natural if you're inquisitive and open and kind about that, that you will then have an opportunity to share your perspectives and faith. And once that happens, you're in a place of more openness and friendship with that person. As long as you don't say anything offensive about Islam, you can share pretty openly. Well, this is what I believe. Thank you for sharing what you believe. And then you can get into dialogue with that person. And typically, that's not going to be a hostile dialogue at all. It's going to be very friendly. I tend not to enter hostile dialogues with Muslims if I can avoid it. Um, Because I haven't found that hostile dialogues have been convincing for anyone. I I follow more of a tack that I just like to make a lot of Jesus. I like to share my testimony. This is what Jesus did in my life. Mm -hmm. This is how great Jesus is. And I just lift him up and... If, if, the, if that's interesting to them, they'll, they'll ask more questions. We talked about, David, the, the early days of your gospel work overseas and some of the challenges then. Yeah. What are your challenges today? Okay, so the <laughs> biggest challenges that we're facing right now is needing to develop more and better Muslim background leaders. So, for example, like we have some places where we're seeing dozens or maybe a few hundred Muslims come to Christ and take baptism and starting to form into fledgling churches. But one of the challenges is this might be a church of five or 10 or 15 people, but there's nobody in it who knows the word very well. 
There's nobody in it who's a skilled teacher. And we're not, a, we're not threatened by that. We don't, we don't see that as a bad thing. It's just a, a stage in progress. And one of the biggest problems we have right now is how are we going to train enough and decent Muslim background, Urdu-speaking Bible teachers who can, who can sufficiently lead those churches and take things to the next level? How are we going to develop Muslim background leaders who are going to keep taking things to the next level? And it's been challenging. And the biggest challenge with it is this, is that many Urdu-speaking Muslims don't trust each other because they're wondering if the other guy might be a Judas. And so it's not, it's not as if we can just bring a lot of them together and train them together. We have to do a lot of, a lot of smaller meetings. It might be three guys getting trained together instead of training 20 guys together. Wow. And that lowers our efficiency. It's very labor intensive. Yes. It's interesting as you say that, and I've had guests from many other hostile and restricted nations, and that is almost always one of their great prayer needs and challenges is how are we going to raise up more leaders? How are we going to raise up more leaders? How are we going to do that? So I would encourage our listeners, as you are praying this week, please pray for Urdu-speaking believers and for God to raise up church leaders among them. David, are there other ways we can pray for the work in South Asia? And, you know, I, I think of new believers who are in that stage of saying, okay, who am I going to tell about this? Mm. What are some other ways we can pray? I would say the, the biggest need is just that the, the Muslim background believers would just be strengthened in the Word and in Christ and that, um, and that leaders would emerge from them, is that God would just supernaturally call some people into ministry and that they would go through the grind of what's necessary to be formed by Christ, to be able to teach his word well, and to lead others. That's probably the biggest need. Um, along with that, persecution. Like we we have so many stories of persecution. I don't think that o- almost no believer, almost no Urdu-speaking Muslim comes to Christ without a persecution story. And there's always danger that the persecution will just knock the wind out of enough of the believers that things will regress and go backwards. Mm-hmm. And just praying that God will give the grace that's necessary to believers to continue to walk through that. Amen. Are there some stories that you can share of, of what what that persecution has looked like and, and what it has cost our brothers and sisters there? I mean, there, there's a ton of stories going on. So I, I remember one good friend— I don't want to use any names, um, but one one friend he he was leading a meeting of um, twenty or twenty five of his um, disciples and um, the Muslim background leader with a group of his disciples and a group of Hindus in the area um, were threatened by these Muslims gathering together. Didn't know what they were doing, so a group of about a hundred or one hundred fifty Hindus stormed that facility, took it over, and got the police there. And the police didn't arrest the mob; they arrested the Muslim background believers who were the target of the mob. And one of those guys was, um, I don't know, he was probably in police custody for a week or 10 days or something like that until, uh, until an extortion was provided. Uh, the police didn't wow. um, press charges or do anything proper like that. But the only way that he was going to be fine is giving an extortion. Or another friend who's— Let me, let me yeah, dig into that because it's yeah. interesting to me. Those were Hindus attacking—they thought they were attacking Muslims. Yes. But they were actually attacking Christians. Right. So, so, so that's not even your family or your community turning against you. That's a completely outside force coming in and causing persecution. Something that Westerners don't realize right now is the strength that um, a lot of Hindus are gathering in South Asia, that they, there's a strong impulse among Hindu nationalists that they want to get rid of anyone who's a Muslim or a Christian. 
th- that's created a, a lot of persecution of Muslims by Hindus. And in fact, there's three countries in the world where I think that Muslims are most persecuted, and it's China, India, and Burma. And it's interesting that they're all right next to each other. Yeah, wow. Okay, sorry. Sorry to interrupt that story. Yeah. <laughs> to, to tell another story of, yeah. so, of what persecution looks like. A Muslim background guy who was, has been making disciples for years has a couple of house churches. The local Muslim religious leaders became threatened by that, so they went to the police, and, his, and he lives in a Muslim-majority area. Um, so there's not Hindus in that area that would persecute him, but they they asked the police to begin harassing him. So the police would begin calling him and into the police station, and they would beat him. And they had he had days that he was beaten so badly by the police that he would have to go home and lay in bed for two or three days to recover um, before he was able to begin his ministry. And then he knew that he would have to go back to the police the following week on the same day. So he knew that he would be beaten have a few days of recovery, a few days of ministry, another beating. And I remember talking to him and he's a dear friend and he was saying, I don't know how many, I don't know how long my body can sustain this. And he, he he's saying, they say that they'll stop if I stop doing the ministry. What do I do? And And he was struggling because at that time he had a bunch of Muslim seekers who were ready to take baptism, but he was afraid to baptize them because he knew that that would cause the persecution to intensify. And he walked through that. Um, thankfully, that persecution ended after some time, but um, that was a very difficult time. He, he and I were only able to meet on the phone for a while because he didn't he couldn't be seen with a Westerner. And we would meet in Bible study every week, and I was c- trying to counsel him from the Word every week as the the Westerner with an easy life, yeah. trying to counsel a local believer to stand firm in Christ in the face of persecution. Those were very difficult Bible studies to lead. How do you process that as a as putting someone else in harm's way and encouraging them to stay there? So I, I process it through the lens of Jesus. So early in my time on the field, I, I had an experience in the Word where I was reading through the, the Matthew, Matthew chapter ten, where Jesus tells his disciples, "I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves." And I realized as I read that, that Jesus sent the people he cared about most in the world as lambs in the midst of wolves. And as I was just thinking about what that meant about the character of Jesus and his belief in the mission and what he, what he was willing to do for it, not just willing to give up his own life, but willing to give up the lives of his best friends, I felt the Holy Spirit was just whispering into my heart that he was calling me to do the same thing. And that I would, I would be called to encourage my best friends to go as lambs in the midst of wolves and that as Jesus encouraged some of his closest friends to go to death, that I would probably be in the same place. And so when I, when I stand into places like that, I remember that Bible study. But then honestly, every time I encourage um, a believer to go uh, to be bold in the face of persecution, I can't sleep for days. I lose a lot of sleep um, and I, I cry tears. You know, we're, it's, it's not an easy calling to ask people to do that, but it's what Jesus would do. Amen. We've been talking this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with David Paul. He is working among Urdu-speaking Muslims in South Asia. As always, if you are just now joining us, you can hear this whole conversation at vomradio.net. You can also find Voice of the Martyrs Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. David, thank you for sharing with us this week. Thank you for opening our eyes and helping us pray for our 
family members in South Asia. Amen. Thank you, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, it has been great to have you. I hope that you will be back with us next week. We're going to have a, a very powerful conversation with a gospel worker who suffered greatly for his work, for his ministry, uh, was actually taken hostage and held hostage for years. We're going to hear that conversation. It's I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's going to be a hard conversation, but I think you're going to be blessed and encouraged as well and equipped to pray, equipped to pray for uh, God's work in Western Africa and for brothers and sisters who right now are in that place of suffering and in that place of terrible hardship. Be back with us next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.